So our scripture reading this morning is from the gospel according to Luke. We've been uh, listening to Luke for the last couple of weeks. Um, and we're going to listen to him again this week and next week. Uh, we're kind of doing like a three, I don't know, is it a series? Maybe by happenstance. God puts together series sometimes, right? So we're bridging from Eric's message last week to next week's sort of kickoff message on the church year. Uh, so this uh, passage that we're going to look at this morning is from Luke chapter 6. We're only going to read two verses. It's super short. I mean, the sermon should be done in a heartbeat uh, because the passage is so short, right? Luke chapter 6, verses 39 and 40. If you don't have a Bible, uh, you can find the words printed in your bulletin as well. Beginning at verse 39 of Luke chapter 6, he also told them this parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A student is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. This is God's word. Uh, just another reminder for you, uh, it, when, it, when we have time, we like to hold a little bit of a Q&A after the sermon, an opportunity for you to interact a little bit with the sermon and ask some questions for clarification perhaps. Uh, my phone number is in the bulletin. You can text those questions as they come up uh, to me or at the end of the, the message, you can also raise your hand and ask it uh, that way if you would like. As I mentioned, we're bridging from last week to next week, this week. Last week, if you were here, you'll remember that Eric preached on the story of Jesus calling Levi. Levi, also known as Matthew, he was a tax collector that Jesus called as one of his disciples. And that's recorded in Luke chapter 5. It's an interesting story. Jesus meets Levi. He says, hey, you, follow me. It says that Levi left everything, got up, and he followed Jesus. And the very next thing he did was he held a party in honor of Jesus, and he invited all his friends to that party to celebrate this newfound relationship with his Savior, Jesus Christ. And what's fascinating, of course, is that the guys that came to the party were the guys that Levi hung out with before his conversion, which happened to be some pretty rough characters. You know, he was a tax collector, so the fine upstanding citizens of his village probably didn't spend much time with him, and it was more the seedy underbelly of society that spent time with Levi, and those were the ones that he invited to his party in honor of Jesus, and of course, Jesus went to that party. And Eric pointed out last week something very interesting, and it's this. When the Pharisees, who are the religious leaders, the very upstanding guys, you know, really serious, religious, morally upright people, uh, and uh, the kind of leaders in their community that people would look up to, when they saw this happening, they don't go up to Jesus and say, so what gives? They go up to Jesus' disciples, and they say, so why does your teacher, your rabbi, your leader, why does he eat with sinners and tax collectors? And it's a loaded question because, yeah, they kind of want an answer, but they're actually basically saying to the disciples, why are you following that guy? 
he is breaking all the rules. He is hanging out with the unclean. He's hanging out with the, with the kind of slimy folk of society. The people that fine, upstanding people with good reputations wouldn't be caught dead with. And you're spending time with that guy. Is he really qualified to be your leader, your rabbi? Is he the guy you want to follow, right? That's Luke chapter 5. So they're questioning the qualifications of Jesus. Now we come to Luke chapter 6, which is where we find the passage we just read a moment ago. And in Luke chapter 6, Jesus preaches what's called the Sermon on the Plain. It's kind of known as the Sermon on the Plain. It's similar to the Sermon on the Mount, which Matthew records in his gospel, but it's, it's quite a bit shorter. And Jesus has not forgotten what those Pharisees asked his disciples. He was there. He actually is the one who responded to them when he said, you know, it's not the righteous who need a, uh, I have not come to call the righteous, but I have come to call the sinners to repentance. So Jesus remembers that, and in the middle of his sermon on the plain, he basically answers their question about why would you be following this dude, why would you be uh, entrusting yourself to his teaching, that kind of thing, by telling this parable, which is the shortest, pretty much the shortest of his parables. It's so short. Uh, I read it like maybe five minutes ago. We can read it again and not lose much time. He says, can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? That's the parable. And then he explains it right away. And he says, a student is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. Here's the point. Jesus says, I'm the leader you want to follow. I'm the right leader for you. I'm not blind. Those guys are blind. In Matthew uh, chapter 15, Jesus actually calls them blind guides. And he says, essentially, if you follow them, you will be in big trouble. You will be destroyed. You will fall into this thing called a pit, and therefore you ought to follow me. That's the point of this parable. Amen. Let us pray. Uh, no. Um, sorry for those who are hoping. My kids are like, yes, no. Um, there's some questions here in this parable that need to be answered that will show us the depth of what Jesus is talking about. Those questions actually make up your outline on the back of your bulletin somewhere here, an outline for the, for the, uh, for the sermon. And the questions are, are this. As you read this, as you read this this parable, you you can come up with these questions. First of all, um, what is this blindness that Jesus is talking? Why is Jesus calling the Pharisees blind? That's one question. The second question is, what's this pit that leads to destruction that he's talking about? Thirdly, why, if you think about it, why would a blind man follow a blind man? Why does that happen? Why does a blind person follow a blind person? You'd think blind person A would say to blind person B, "Hey, are you blind?" And blind person B would go, yeah, like, I'm blind too. Okay, well, I'm not going to follow you, but that's not what happens. Apparently, blind people find, follow blind people. Why on earth would that be? And then finally, how in the world do you know that you're following the right leader? If you're blind, it's kind of hard to tell if you're following the right leader. And it would be good to know that you are following the right leader so that you don't end up in the pit. These are the questions we're going to try to answer over the next few minutes together. I hope that was clear. If it wasn't, oh well. Hopefully, it'll get clearer as we go. All right, first point. Why does Jesus call these guys blind men? 
of all the things he could call them. Why are they blind men? And, and as I said in, in Matthew 15, he calls them blind guides. Why does Jesus use this term? And the reason is because in Scripture, blindness is a metaphor used very often to describe people who are unwilling and sometimes unable, but definitely unwilling to receive the truth of God. So in the Old Testament, the people who are blind are the people who will not receive the word of the prophets, who will not receive the call to repentance, who will not receive the good news. In the New Testament, it's people who refuse to believe in God, who refuse to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. These are people who, who won't receive the truth. And so the Apostle Paul, in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 4, he says something, some, or sorry, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, he says this, listen to this, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. You hear that? They can't see the light of the gospel because they can't see that Jesus is the promised Messiah of the gospel, the good news, Okay? So in Scripture, blindness is referred, is, is used to describe people who don't receive the truth of the gospel. They can't see the light of the gospel. They can't, they can't get it. Imagine, imagine trying to explain light to a person who has been blind their entire lives. That would be extremely difficult, right? They just wouldn't. They wouldn't get it. They've never had any kind of experience of it, right? I mean, now. Uh, I admit, I googled this, and there are ways to do it, apparently. But you got to know that there are ways to do it. If you were just told to do it on, on the spot, you wouldn't know what to do, right? Because it would be so very, very difficult to understand. And that makes sense when you're talking about an unbelieving person, person who doesn't believe the gospel, person who doesn't have any kind of religion, to tell them, Jesus is the Son of God, in whom you have to put your trust, otherwise... You will fall into a pit that leads to destruction. They will look at you like you're cuckoo. They, it will not make sense to you, to them. It will seem so bizarre to them that they would even need. I, I have done interviews with people, and one of the questions I ask them is, so what do you think about this whole idea of salvation? Do you need salvation? Do you believe in, in, in your need for salvation? That kind of thing. And they will, they will look at me, and they'll say, salvation from what? I don't need salvation from anything, do I? And so it's no surprise that non-Christians will find it very, very difficult to kind of accept the idea that Jesus is the Son of God. But what's strange here is that Jesus uses this term blind, blind men, for the Pharisees, excuse me, geez, for the Pharisees. Pharisees. Think about it. The Pharisees, who were they? They were very well-educated religious leaders. They studied Torah. Torah is the Old Testament. They studied the Torah incessantly. They thought really, really hard about how they were supposed to apply the law of God. They worked very hard at obeying all those laws and making sure that they were righteous. And yet, Jesus says that those guys, those Pharisees, they don't get it. They're not receiving the message of the gospel. They're not believing it. They're not understanding it. And, and that's because Jesus is showing us here that there are 
There's a second way for people to be blind. There's the non-religious way of being blind, which is to say, I don't need it, I don't get it, I don't understand it, no interest, etc. But there's also a religious way of being blind. There's a religious way of being blind? The answer is, yes, there is. And this is moving now into the second point, this pit of destruction. Once we understand this pit of destruction, it'll help us see how you can be a religious person and be just as blind as these irreligious people. And I'm going to use actually a metaphor, an extended metaphor to help understand this because when I heard it, it was so incredibly clarifying for me that I've wanted to use it over and over and over and over again. Some of you may have heard me use it uh, in the past as well. It comes from a great 20th century uh, preacher by the name of Martin Lloyd-Jones. And he said, if you imagine an ancient city-state governed by a king that gets word that they're going to be attacked by marauders from the north, let's say. Then the king, he musters his army, and he goes out to do battle with that army, okay? And the people in the city-state, they're waiting back home, and they're waiting for news on what happened. And of course, messengers eventually are going to come. The question becomes, what kind of messenger is coming? If the messenger comes back, and the doors of the city are flung open, and people welcome him in, and he says, we won! We're victorious. What has he brought? What kind of a messenger is? He is a herald of good news, right? This is great news. We've won. We're safe. We're free. We have nothing to worry about. It's over, right? Battle is done. And how would the people receive him? The people would receive him with joy. They'd throw a big party that night. It would be party time all over the city. People would be celebrating with great joy. That's one possibility. The other possibility is, is that they see the messenger coming, they, flow open the, fly, they fling open the city gates, he comes rushing in, and he says, we lost. Or, we've just slowed them down, but they're coming. This is what you need to do. You need to make sure you've got the archers ready. Everybody go off to the, to the, to the hold fast and get the... the the swords and get the archers out and we need to have the cavalry ready and we need watchmen up on the walls and we need to make sure we barricade the gates. We're going to have to fight for our lives because the enemy is, is just moments from our doorstep, okay? How would people receive it? They would receive it with fear and anxiety and they would do all these things that this guy's telling them to do because they know that they're going to have to fight for their lives. Now, this is what Martin Lloyd-Jones says. He says, Every other religion in the world sends the second kind of messenger. They send, basically, military advisors who say, look, this is the path to salvation or to enlightenment or to nirvana or to happiness or to whatever, and here's what you've got to do in order to get there. And he says the gospel is so unique, Christianity is so unique, it is the only religion that says that sends the first kind, the first kind of, uh, of messenger who brings good news, saying that it's all been done. Victory has been won by the king on your behalf. There's nothing you have to do. All you do is receive it with joy and celebrate. That's all you have to do, you see. The Pharisees, you see, they thought that religion was about advice. They thought that if they 
practiced their religion to the best of their ability, if they did good works, if they followed the law blamelessly, etc., God would be good to them. They worked, worked very, very hard to be blessed by God because of their moral observance. And Jesus is saying, they're blind. They're blind, just like the pagans who are blind, who say, I don't need someone to do it on my behalf. You see? This is the point. You're a slave. This, sorry, this is the pit. What's the pit? The pit is this. You're a slave to what the Bible calls and theologians call something called works righteousness. Basically meaning this. You believe that it is up to you. It's up to you. And either you can do it or you can't. But either way, it's through your effort that you please God. Or you, it's through your effort that you overcome guilt and shame. Or you find enlightenment. Or you achieve nirvana. All of it. It's always through your effort. That's the pit that Jesus is talking about. It's the pit of this effort. And he's saying these religious Pharisees who are working so hard to please God through their moral righteousness, they're just as much falling into the pit as people who say, I don't need God. I don't have to worry about God. I can do it on my own. I can find my own path and my own enlightenment. I can achieve my own uh, uh, success. I can experience my own satisfaction. He's saying it's all the same. And the reason is, is because it makes you a slave to fear and to duty. Especially religious people. Because think about it. The military advisor comes and he says, you've got to do this and this and this and this, and you might be saved. And what do the people do? They hear the military advisor. He says, get archers, get swordsmen, barricade the gate, all that kind of stuff. What do they do? They do as they're told. And what if I came to you and I said, if you want to get to heaven, here's what you got to do. You got to pray this prayer. You got to do these practices. You've got to spend this much time in meditation, whatever. You want to be saved? You want to get to heaven? This is what you have to do. What do you do? You do as you're told, but you do as you're told for the same reason. You see, you're afraid of going to hell or you're afraid of missing out or you're afraid of living with the guilt and shame etc either way you see you're completely obsessed with yourself wondering how am i doing how am i performing did i have a good week this i had a good week this week i didn't do it once this week until next week rolls around or yeah until next week rolls around and then you do it and you're thinking I'm a bum, I'm a failure, I'm never going to pull this off. You're so wrapped up in yourself, you don't, even, you don't even have time to think about, worry about the people around you. And this, this is why the blind follow the blind. And this is point three. Now, I hope I explain this well, okay? All right. If you think about it, if you imagine yourself there. The Pharisees made sense in a way. See, you'd, you'd look at their behavior and you'd see this guy, okay, I'm now I really want, never wandered this far before, I don't think. Here's the man, the Pharisee, walking through the village. 
There's his wife behind him. This is the first century, okay? So the wife always had to walk behind her husband. Wife behind him and his 11 children behind them. And he walks through the city and his kids are so well behaved. And they don't run off and look at different things in the store and touch all the, the stuff at the market. They, they know their place. They're very well behaved because the Pharisee, you know, he keeps his family in line. And when people see him and, and they talk to him and they maybe say something rude or insulting to him, he seems to have such moral rectitude. He seems to have such control. When they, when they say something insulting to him, he doesn't fly off the handle and say something harsh back. He just kind of nods and thinks very wisely and responds with such control and seeming wisdom. And when people talk, at, talk to him, they discover that he is just such a, a, a well-mannered person and he's so kind. And, and when they find out that he, he is a leader in the synagogue, they're all very impressed. And, and it seems so great. He seems to have his life so together. His family straight. His, he and his wife seem to be straight. Everything on the surface, it seems so fantastically perfect. Why wouldn't you want to follow a guy like that? Why wouldn't you look at a guy like that and say, well, I want to be like that. I would love to have a great relationship with my wife and have my kids not running around like a couple of nuts and have uh, a good job and uh, be well-respected in the community. Why would I not want that? So you, you'd say, well, why not follow the Pharisee? Now let's translate this to the church. And here's Bob. And Bob believes that in order to please God... In order to get to heaven, he needs to do the right things. He needs to say the right things. He needs to do the things that the Bible says. I mean, the, it's right there in the Bible. So he reads his Bible, and he prays, and he attends worship, and he sits on uh, missions teams or hospitality teams, and he's, he shows up at different events where there are things that need to be done in order to help the community. He's, he serves and serves and serves, and he does all these things. And he believes that God loves him because he does all these things. And there's Tom. And Tom's new to the church. And Tom's looking around, and he sees Bob, and he sees different people, and he says, man, Bob, this guy's got it all together. And Bob is the kind of guy I think I should emulate because look at how, how straight his life is. And I want my life to be straight too. And so he says, Bob, how do you do it? And Bob says, it's simple, Tom. Read your Bible. Pray. Don't ever miss church. Make sure you go to different things and serve other people. Get out of your head. Stop worrying about yourself all the time and worry about others. That's how you do it, Tom. And Tom says, that makes sense to me. Why? Because it resonates with Tom's heart already. Because Tom's heart is, is, is default. Its default mode is to think that you're supposed to do all the right things and then you get all the right outcomes. And then... Sally is sitting in church too. And Sally has really gotten the gospel deep into her heart. You know what the gospel is? The gospel is this. You don't have to do squat to earn the favor and love of God because God willingly offered his own son, Jesus Christ, on the cross for your sake. He nailed him to it. And Jesus took the wrath and judgment of all your deserved sin on his own shoulders so that God could look at you and say, I delight in you and I cherish you. That's the gospel. 
And all you have to do is trust it. All you do have to do is hold on to it. All you have to do is grab onto Jesus and believe it deep in your soul. And you are free from sin and death and hell and all condemnation. That's it. And Sally gets that deep in her soul. And Sally says, this is the most remarkable gift I've ever had. I can't believe he just gives it to me like that. And so what does Sally do? Sally reads the Bible. Sally prays. Sally can't, she will not miss church because she loves to worship and celebrate what God has done for her in Jesus Christ. And Sally serves others because she says, if I've been given everything by my king, it's stupid for me to just sit around and hold on to it. I've got to give it away and serve other people like him. And she looks just like Bob, right? But the motivation is completely different. On the inside of Bob is fear and guilt and frankly smugness and pride and on the inside of Sally is humility and joy and self-forgetfulness, you know, just freedom. Here's the point. The blind willingly follow the blind because it looks so right on the outside. And if the default mode of the human heart is to want to do it yourself anyway, then why wouldn't you accept some version of that wherever you can find it? Okay. So far. Blindness means an unwillingness or an inability to receive the gospel. The pit of life is a life based on works, works righteousness, believing that it's up to you and you can or cannot do it, depending on how things are going this week, apparently. And the blind will follow the blind because it looks so much like the gospel on the outside. It can produce, works righteousness can produce similar results, at least on the surface. Last point then. If that's all true, how in the world do we avoid this problem? And the answer is what Jesus says in his explanation. I mean, he could have explained this parable a whole bunch of different ways, but he chooses to say a student is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. You've got to follow the right leader, Jesus says. The way you avoid following the wrong leader is you enter the school of Christ. Jesus says a student is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. You will become like who you follow, okay? See, the world screams at you. The world is constantly telling you what to believe in all different places, from all different sides. I don't know if you've ever gone to a county fair. I'm sure everybody here has been to a county fair, right? You've been to Ancaster Fair, or Rockton Fair or something. And you walk down the, uh, not the midway, is it the midway? The part with the games and stuff. And you walk down there, and there's the carnies, right? And the carnies are like, hey, champ, come on over here. Champ, come on, champ, you can do it. Just throw that ball and knock over these uh, milk bottles and win your lovely lady a big old bear or something. And they're always telling, you can do it, you can do it, you can do it. And you, sucker, you say, yes, I can. And you give them that five bucks, and you can't do it. And after about 75 bucks, maybe you get that $3 big bear or little bear. 
But the point is, is that the world is constantly calling at you, calling you, that, telling you that you can do it. That's the Western message. And it attra- it, see, it's attractive because it resonates with you. Because deep down in your soul, you think that's how it ought to work. You do it. And then along comes Jesus. And he's a different teacher. And you've got to understand, when he, when he says, enter my school, he's, he's talking like a first century rabbi. When you go to school on Tuesday, kids, you will spend, I don't know, seven hours with a teacher or six hours or four or two or whatever, days at a time. And then you'll go home and you go home with your parents. But back then, when you entered the school of a rabbi, of a teacher, you actually lived with them. You ate with them. You went everywhere with them. Yes, you studied with them, but you spent all your time with them. And Jesus is saying here, study me. Study my life. Study my death. Study my resurrection. And you will discover who I am and what I came to do. In Mark chapter 4, what does he say? He says, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Study me, Jesus says. Fill your mind with me, fill your heart with me, and you will become like me. I don't know if you know this, but they say that that people who have been married for a really long time, they start to look alike. It's really weird. But there's been scientific studies done to demonstrate this. The more time you spend with one another, the more you start to look like one another. And lots of husbands are going, yes, my wife is beautiful. And lots of wives are going, oh, well... I won't care that anymore anyway. But it's a remarkable thing. You become like those you spend time with. There's no doubt about it with Jesus. The more time you spend with him, the more you will look like him. And what does that look like? It looks like one who's not concerned with himself, right? His reputation was on the line when he was eating with tax collectors and sinners And he didn't care. He wasn't worried about it at all. Because all his life was, all his life he focused on serving his father and serving others. That's what it looks like. Now, one little plug to close very quickly. In a few weeks, we're going to start engage groups. And I mentioned them at the beginning of the service, what engage groups are. They're they're small group studies. They're pretty low-key they're great for you to just invite your friends to who have no relationship with the church, but, but they do have a purpose. Their purpose is to engage one another in fellowship, to engage the word, to study Jesus, and then to engage the Father in prayer. And I would encourage you to think about participating in something like that and joining in something like that so that you'll be like the master. You'll have another context in which you can spend time studying your master and learning to be like him. Let's pray. Father, help us to follow the true master, the right leader, our Lord Jesus Christ, who will not lead us to a pit, but rather will lead us to paradise. Work in us to be attracted to him to want to be like him, to understand him, to rest in him, to receive him so that we may indeed show the world what he is like.
Jesus' name we pray. Amen.